welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, we're recasting Nate's 2022 interview with Joel Selvin, author of Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. Selvin did the research and documents the way Mick Jagger was much more responsible for Altamont than the Hells Angels were. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Joel Selvin, the author of Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and The Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Joel, welcome back to the show. Well, I'm glad to be back, Nate. If you have me on anymore, I'm going to have to be a co-host. <laughs> well, we could talk about that, you know. I, I still want to talk to you about the um, peppermint twist. So, uh, <laughs> negotiate well, keep it rocking. Let's go. All right. So when this book, when I first saw this book was coming out, I was kind of like, why do we need this book? We've got Stanley Booth's account uh, from Backstage with the Stones, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, one of the best books uh, about rock and roll ever written. We've got the Gimme Shelter documentary by the Males Brothers, one of the best documentaries uh, ever made about rock and roll. And yet now that I've read the book, I know exactly why we needed this book. Tell us why we needed this book. Well, and I agree with you. Stanley's book is really just fantastic, and the movie is extraordinary, but neither tell the story of Altamont. They, uh, I mean, the movie pretends to, but the movie is uh, made with the Rolling Stones watching over the shoulders of the filmmakers. They're their partners. And uh, they they had total veto control over anything that went in that movie. Uh, it's it 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 it's got so many lies and distortions and 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 excuses and and then ends on this falsely sentimental note of uh, Jagger and Charlie uh, Watts watching the uh, footage of the killing in the uh, uh, editing room. Uh, Stanley's book doesn't even attempt to explain Altamont. It just, it was, he was there and it's a very vivid account of his day at the scene and the night before, uh, I leaned heavily on it in, in my research because it's just so brilliantly uh, evoked, but you know, Stanley's not, uh, uh, into the, backstory of the Grateful Dead and how this whole thing started and came together and fell apart. Uh, it really is its own unique maelstrom in the history of rock. I can't believe that uh, 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 that story was lying around for me to write rather than having some um, you know, more talented writer and gotten to it years before than I did. But I'm there you so are. I mean, when I uh, first started um, Working on the book, uh, I I, um, I read a, a, a book by a, the guy who wrote Devil in White City, whose name escapes me right now, Larson. Yeah, Lar- uh, and and uh, his first book was about a hurricane coming to Galveston back around the turn of the century. That there's the it. it, it, it established the U.S. Weather Service eventually, but this was something that I read to 
to sort of like model because the whole thing struck me. Well, you know, the storm sort of gathers offshore and then it gains intensity and they start to try and deal with it uh, in the city. And then it comes, it sweeps through and there's all this damage and they have to clean up and then the story's done. In the Galveston case, it was about six days. Uh, in the case of Altamont, it was a, it was six weeks, and uh, it, it 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 just is a sweep of events that starts unexpectedly from Rock Scully's arrest in Heathrow Airport, and just boom, r- 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 surges through time to December sixth when they actually do the concert. And let's give us a, a little context, like. What was going on in the American rock scene in 1969 such that a band like the Rolling Stones that had been the biggest band in America in 65 and 66 um, or close second to the Beatles, but in 65 with Satisfaction, they were immense, did big tours. But in 69, when they come back, it's like a whole new world. What had changed so much between 66 and 69 in the rock and roll business? Well, so much changed. I mean, it was the Fillmore era of uh, rock, uh, and uh, the the whole thing had mushroomed, ballooned, uh, exploded in, in in terms of public interest uh, from something that was, you know, young people and a slender group of them uh, to having really just rolled through this entire country. I mean, the the uh, big act of uh, the fall of 1969 was Led Zeppelin. They were the most exciting new rock band on the scene. They were selling out hockey rinks and, and, and basketball arenas everywhere, putting on this pulverizing two-and-a-half-hour show. Uh, it, it was uh, something to behold, and it was a long way from the Rolling Stones, who last appeared on stages in the United States when Aftermath was their new album in 1966 and Paint It Black was their big hit. So yeah, the, 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 the earth had cooled considerably in, 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 in the rock world uh, in between 66 and 69. I mean, just think about Woodstock, which was August 69, and that, all those bands, I would say, I'm guessing, but I'd say half of them didn't exist when Paint It Black was on the charts. I think that's a pretty good bet. So you had this massive change in the way the business worked. You had new technology with improved amplifiers. You had Marshall stacks. You had stage monitors. You had p- bands bringing their own PA systems. I think on some of the Stones shows in 66, they used like the house PA system at hockey rinks. And when the Beatles played Chase Stadium in 65, the sound was literally coming out little speakers like you would see at a drive-in movie theater on little posts all over uh, the stadium. So this, you know, quantum leap in the technology, a whole new generation of heavy rock bands are playing much louder, much longer, much more serious, taken much more seriously. You've got magazines like Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy, um, you know, treating rock like jazz had been treated as the serious music for adults. And, and um, you know, Big business, starting with Monterey Pop, the big pop festival in uh, Northern California in 67 and Woodstock in 69. You had Bill Graham, uh, you know, the impresario of San Francisco at the Fillmore West. He'd expanded to the East Coast with the Fillmore East. Well, let's go ahead and hear our first song uh, from Altamont. And this is a band that kind of dodged the bullet. They kept themselves out of the movie and you rarely hear Santana discussed when you're talking about Altamont, but as we'll discuss, they had a key role to play, key act on the show. This is Santana doing Soul Sacrifice at Altamont. Santana's Soul Sacrifice live at Altamont. And it's, 
you know, footage, uh, I think a, a library in Sacramento has preserved outtakes from the movie because Santana refused to uh, let their show be part of the movie, wouldn't sign the releases. Um, because so they had not actually outtakes from the movie, Nate. And uh, the, the, it's from a collection of kind of random film in San Francisco, a just massive archive of, of uh, un, uh, uncategorized film, like stock film images, but not indexed. Uh, and uh, the Library of Congress acquired it some years ago, like three or four years ago, and they found an undeveloped role of home movies taken at Altamont. That's oh, what you're talking about. It showed up yep. on the internet just recently. Call Google Altamont Library of Congress and it'll pop right up. Yep. And uh, some amazing footage. And you can see some of the mayhem that was going on during Santana's set. And we'll get to the causes of the mayhem. But let's talk a little bit about more about the Stones because they were a very unique beast. They had been one of the big bands of the British invasion about a year or so behind the Beatles in terms of becoming superstars in America. And about a year behind the Beatles becoming superstars in England, for that matter. Um, but they were in a unique position. They, they're, uh, they had come back with Jumpin' Jack Flash after some psychedelic distractions in 66 and 67 that kind of took some of the shine off of them. They had fired their original manager, Andrew Lou Goldham. And now they were in a big fight with Alan Klein, who had been their manager for a few years and who was now busy with the Beatles. And they had realized Alan Klein was not the most scrupulous financial manager, or maybe he was very scrupulous, but his interests were not the same as the bands. And so they were broke. They were one of the biggest bands on earth, and yet they were broke. So they were doing this tour for the money. Their ticket prices were much higher than anybody else's. What was the structure? Who did they get to run this tour for them because they did not want their own manager, Alan Klein, handling it? Yeah, well, the... The Stones were advised by a, a Swiss banker who had no experience in show business whatsoever that they should form a company and tour the United States because Alan Klein had all their other revenue blocked. All their record revenue, all their publishing money was just not getting out of Alan Klein's office and, and there was no way they could do it short of litigation. So they were advised to do this tour, and the whole thing came together really quickly following Mick Jagger's return from Australia, where he was filming that cinematic classic, Ned Kelly. Uh, um, I don't know that they really uh, had a business infrastructure of any significance. And of course, as advanced as this business had become since 66, as you noted, it still was pretty roughshod. You know, there weren't corporations involved. Uh, the local promoters were guys that were individual entrepreneurs. There was no real system. There was no real routing. There was no real, the business was just getting going. And so, uh, they relied on the nephew of Alan Klein, who had been on the 66 tour as a kind of bookkeeper and, you know, factotum or something, uh, Ronnie Schneider. And Ronnie uh, got associated with some character. Um, refresh me of his name. He was uh, in the witness protection program. At You're talking about John James. This, this is an John amazing James, character. Yes. With with a Y in his name, uh, yeah. Uh, so he walks in telling everybody when they're starting to pull the plans for the tour together in Los Angeles uh, that he works for Chrysler and he can get them cars. And he goes to Chrysler and tells them that he works for the Stones and he can get the Stones to endorse Chrysler if they just give him cars. So this guy shows up with a lot of cars and, and, and immediately ingratiates himself into the top ranks of the touring uh, 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 party. Uh, he had some connections with uh, New York police, and, and he was just an altogether sort of shady character who uh, ended up <clears throat> um, 
spending a considerable amount of time uh, back in prison on fraud charges in, in, in federal penitentiary. But, he, you know, at, at, he, 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 he was one of the people calling the shots and making decisions and running the Rolling Stones tour in 1969. It's just extraordinary. It really is. And the bit about him being in the witness protection program, that was something you unearthed for this book, or at least it was news to me. Just unbelievable stuff. And the fact that, you know, he had this coterie of off-duty New York police officers that he could summon to do security all over the country, many of whom allegedly were also handing out pharmaceutical quality cocaine uh, to the band and various hangers on. It's extremely shady. And the fact that this happens at the same time as COINTELPRO, the documented FBI program uh, to sabotage, you know, the Black Panthers and, and the Hells Angels and others, it's just extremely shady. And I feel like you've just scratched the surface of the shadiness going on with this John James character. Uh, who ended up actually being the person, the party who signed the contract to put on the Altamont show, which is, you know, just unbelievable. And there's another couple of characters we need to introduce. Tell us about Sam Cutler, who he was and what his role on the tour was. Oh, Sam, what a great pirate Sam is. He's living down in Australia. He's got a GoFundMe page right now. He's trying to raise money. He's gotten evicted from his apartment. He wants to live in a bus. Um, and God anybody who saw the, the, the four-hour Grateful Dead documentary is thoroughly acquainted with Sam because he was the engine of that documentary. It was hilarious, wonderful. Sam was a you know marginal figure on the British rock scene in London. I mean, like, I can't tell you how marginal, like a gopher uh, who vaulted up in the extraordinary days of of of, of 1967 uh, uh, 68 to being the stage manager of the first guys to do big concerts in london's high park and as a result he was the stage manager when uh the stones came back with mick taylor for their first performance after this long hiatus uh, and after brian jones's death in the summer of 69 and the the by virtue of the fact that he had managed their one concert they sort of pulled him into their orbit and he ended up being the stage manager for the entire 1969 tour don't think sam had ever been to the united states before let alone run any like kind of traveling rock band anywhere i believe he accompanied alex alexis corner on a tour of europe just the two of them I believe that was his road managing experience. Wow. But, uh, uh, you know, Sam was a cunning guy, he came from kind of like, uh, you know, free thinking background, and he was all into the hippie thing. And, and uh, like I say, you know, he's the sort of guy you want on your pirate ship, you know, Grr, maybe let's go get some wenches and drink some grog, you know, who's that guy? <laughs> and let's hear our next song. This is the Jefferson Airplane doing The Other Side of This Life at Altamont. Would you like to know a secret, baby, just between you and me? Don't know where I'm going next. I don't know who I'm gonna be. And that's the other side of this life. I believe in love. And that's the other side of this life. That was a Jefferson Airplane doing the other side of this life on at Altamont. And this is the song where Marty Balin gets punched by the Hells Angels. Um, very disturbing part of the Gimme Shelter documentary. Very disturbing part of the Jefferson Airplane story. And as you argue in the book, a key part of really breaking up the band. Jefferson Airplane, who had been the most successful class of 67 band to come out of San Francisco uh, in the big Haight-Ashbury boom, really is never the same and, and kind of starts breaking up and, and splintering after Altamont and eventually morphs into Jefferson's uh, starship and, um, you know, has a very different career than, say, the Grateful Dead, who go on to 
manage their reputation and hold on to their hippie audience and become this sort of American legend where the Jefferson Airplane kind of gets chewed up by the record business and the rest of it. But let's get um, some more back to our story. So we've got Sam Cutler and uh, we've got Ronnie Snyder running the, the Stones tour on the business side. We've got this weird character, John James, who's inserted himself into the tour, who's making these key decisions, who's providing security, who's cutting deals on behalf of Mick Jagger and the Stones. You've got Sam Cutler, who's running the day-to-day show and who's introducing them on stage, names them the world's greatest rock and roll band uh, in the course of this tour. Um, and they, and you mentioned the Hyde Park show they played. And this is a big deal. This is a half million people playing at a free concert in Hyde Park. There had been Hell's Angels there, but they were the London branch of the Hell's Angels, which was a very different animal uh, to some of the California branches that the Stones are going to be dealing with at Altamont. But nonetheless, the concert goes off without a hitch. It's not their best show, but it's peaceful. It's um, a real statement of generational power and uh, along the lines of Woodstock and Monterey. And so... As this tour hits America, and there's criticism from the press, Ralph Gleason, who was a columnist for one of the big San Francisco papers and also an advisor to Rolling Stone magazine and a contributor to Rolling Stone, he's really writing them about their high ticket prices. And some versions of the story, I mean, the Gimme Shelter documentary, kind of tell the story as if Ralph Gleason had sort of single-handedly pressured the Stones into doing a free concert. What's your take on that? Well, Ralph was an issue, uh, oddly enough. Uh, it's my predecessor at the Chronicle, and, and, and you know, $7.50 was about twice what everybody else uh, was charging for uh, concert tickets. So, and, and it, it also offended Ralph that the money was just going straight to the Stones, that Ike and Tina were working for $1,500 a night. Uh, and uh, he had a point, but I mean, this was all about the money. I mean, they made the promoters, uh, put up the advance 100%. So because they didn't have any money to fund the tour. So if you wanted a stone state, you had to put the guarantee up like 90 days in advance and they collected everybody's advance. And then they were able to come over to the United States. (laughs) So that's, that's what that, that was, you know what I'm saying? Uh, the free concert, hmm. you know, nobody's ever going to figure out definitively what was behind that. Like, was it this fantasy that Keith Richards and Rock Scully of the Grateful Dead dreamed up smoking weed in London one night and just sort of like got out of hand? Was it a, a scene in a movie that Mick Jagger envisioned? having missed out on Woodstock, which was such a big deal. This is October, like 60 days after Woodstock, and the whole thing was just swimming in the ethos of that event. And having missed out on Woodstock, did he not want to have his concert film that he envisioned show him in front of a giant hillside full of uh, uh, adoring fans like the guys at Woodstock did? I think that's pretty seductive. Uh, the movie came together super quickly. That was uh, an idea that was first like discussed in October while they were in Los Angeles, but the Maisels didn't come on board until like two nights before they started shooting at Madison Square Garden, which was the penultimate uh, date on the tour. Uh, and what, two weeks yeah, about about ten days before Altamont. Wow. Um, so the the everything was just slapdash as could be, without any kind of real preparations or uh, foresight or planning and or strategies of any sort. It was just yeah, we can do this, and that was born of a couple of things, as far as I can tell. One was, and you would have had to have been there in 1969, there was a sense in the air that you could do anything. That, you know, the the, the, the physical world withstand, notwithstanding, you could, if, if you could get enough people together and have the same idea, you could do Woodstock. 
But, uh, you know, there was also, along with that kind of innocence, and the other side of that, the dark side of that, was there was a lot of greed. Because not only could you do stuff, you could collect a lot of booty. You could you you could be a pirate ship going from port to port, and like I say, you know, grog, wenches, booty—it was all yours. Um, the stones. I, I I saw the unpaid bills from their tour. They literally didn't pay anybody. They would rent cars and leave them around the city when they left. They would uh, book hotels and not check out. Uh, their airfares, uh, uh, they changed travel agents midway through the tour because the first travel agent had like a $33,000 airplane bill they were having trouble collecting. So they weren't going to put any more airplane tickets on the Stones account. So it was time for a new travel agent. <laughs> and literally, uh, those bills uh, were not settled until the, 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 they got to the courthouse steps in 1975, six years later. Wow. Yeah, that when you were when you cataloged that in the book, it was just staggering and really testified to the Stones. Pirate is the right word for what they were doing. They were making a cash run across the United States. They didn't have the cash to pay their bills and you know, just grab and go. It's it's really staggering that they were able to do business that way. But let's let's hear from our sponsors real quick. And when we come back, we'll talk about Altamont and why it all went so wrong. And so we've talked about the Stones tour and their business structure, but there's also been there had been a tradition of live concerts, free concerts in Golden Gate Park, which is a beautiful location in San Francisco, very comparable to Hyde Park in London. You know, each is unique to the scenery and geography of that city, but you know, right at the heart of the city, this immense park, beautiful location. The Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead had played many a free show there. The assumption was just kind of, we can do this again. And initially, you know, Rock Scully, one of the managers of the Grateful Dead, had sort of signed on to make it happen. But the Stones organization, such as it was, how did, how did Golden Gate get nixed as a venue for the show? Oh, that's a... You know, the whole thing was Keith and Rock staying up and just BSing about stuff, including a free concert with the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. They also discussed doing a Stones concert at Taj Mahal. So it was a wide-ranging discussion that night. But Keith apparently took that idea to heart and, and got the ball rolling. And so when they showed up in Los Angeles in October, uh, Rock came down and met with all the Stones and, and, and started to produce this free concert. Yeah, um, I mean... The dead were very versed in San Francisco park politics. They'd done lots of concerts there, both sub Rosa and permitted. Uh, and they had a guy that works, was their guy to work with the city bureaucracy. And they set Bert to work on getting it cleared and they had it all bird had it all set up with the with the park board but because of the nature of this event the park board wanted to hold off rubber stamping the permit until they had a board meeting in the meantime it comes to john james attention that this is going on and john james you know he's got to have something to do because he's like trying to run this tour he says let me handle this I'm going to contact the mayor's office. Thanks so that word. was it because the mayor was a guy named Joe Alioto. He hated hippies. He didn't want anything to do with concerts in the park. Uh, he was the last real Republican mayor of San Francisco. Uh, and uh, that just scotched the whole thing. As soon as the mayor's office heard about plans for this, it was like over. And the next night, Next mo- next day, the Stones have a press conference in New York. So this is toward the end of the tour already, right? And Jagger says, oh, we're going to have a free concert 
on December 6th. We were going to have it in Golden Gate Park, but that's not happening as of last night. So somewhere near San Francisco. I mean, whoa, what sort of a world do we live in where that's a press release? But there you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, that left it to the, the this loose amalgamation of the Grateful Dead, some of the San Francisco rock community that just felt like volunteering for this debacle, and a couple of Stones liaisons to carry the ball forward. The Stones finish their tour, they go to Muscle Shoals to cut a few songs, and they go, uh, uh, that's like Monday, and the concert, the free concert in California is Saturday. So on Tuesday, the people in San Francisco discover this racetrack up in Sonoma, which is about 60 miles north of San Francisco, brand new racetrack, about a year old, um, motorsports right and and they meet with the guys up there and 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 they say sure you know this is great you know come on let's do it so they start building stage and everything on on uh wednesday morning and uh that's when the corporate owner of the sonoma racetrack it learns that this is taking place and that would be filmways and filmways is a, a, a motion picture distributor company, not so much of a, of, of a, um, a producer of films, but they distribute them. And they had been the concert producers in Los Angeles of the Stones concerts earlier in the tour, and the Stones hung them out to try, uh, including like booking and then canceling a third concert that the company wanted very much. So they had the stones over a barrel and they knew it. And they also didn't believe the stones uh, were going to use the uh, proceeds to benefit Vietnam uh, war orphans, uh, which was kind of shrewd of them. Um, so they demanded distribution on the movie. They wanted um, a big insurance policy on their uh, grounds. You know, they just stepped right up with a bunch of demands, and the Stones were having nothing of it. They definitely were not going to give up the distribution to their movie. This was their big play to really make money. Tour was fine, raises cash. Movie makes money without you going out on the road. Just they send the checks to you. So uh, they weren't ready to give up that part of the uh, pie. Uh, and so now it's Thursday. Saturday's the show. They hire this San Francisco lawyer named Melvin Belli, who was famously called the king of torts. And I'm not sure what Belli's role was. You know, he was trying to browbeat the Sonoma County Sheriff into uh, letting the, the, the thing go on. And, and the raceway is a great idea, by the way. You know, there's infrastructure, there's bathrooms, there's parking, there's water. You know, it's like fantastic idea. And, and, the, and, and the, the shape of the place was great. I mean, it, it was a, like a sloping, huge uh, uh, fairway. And and the one thing they did was they started immediately and they, they, they carved off a plateau for the stage so that the audience could, you know, come up to this sort of like cliff and they could build this stage on the top of the hill on the cliff and like 15 feet between the audience and the stage. And it's a very important distinction because by the time they get to Altamont, of course, that 15 feet turned into three feet. That would be a factor all out, all during the day. Anyway, so somewhere around four o'clock on Thursday, uh, this guy named Dick Carter calls Belli's office and he's heard about this on the radio because radio stations are all over this. They're fighting each other to like, uh, you know, Rolling Stones free concert this weekend. And you, you'll hear it first on KFRC, right? So uh, Carter owns this dilapidated uh, racetrack 60 miles east of San Francisco. Big difference from 60 miles north. There's still, you know, the uh, culture and, and community and, and, and stuff in, in Sonoma. 60 miles east of San Francisco, it's Indian country. I mean, literally, the, the police cars, uh, out, when they went to Altamont, uh, they were out of radio range uh, from uh, their uh, headquarters. So uh, uh, 
and Carter's got this thing. He's going, he's going out of business, and he just, he'll just he do anything for the publicity. Sure, bring it on here. Now, they don't know. Well, they've never seen this place or anything. So they get a traffic helicopter over to the dead's office in Marin County, and they pick up Rock Scully and Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock, who was just turned up the day before to see if he can help and sprinkle a little Woodstock fairy dust on this enterprise. And they go fly over this thing. And Rock told me about this. He says, they get over the hill and they swoop down and they look at this like beat up racetrack with oil stains and discarded tires and broken glass. And Rock's looking over this going, thinking, what the hell are we going to do with this? And Michael Lang goes, oh, this is perfect. We can do it here. And that was all it took because this guy was like glowing from the magic of Woodstock. And if he says they can do it there, well, I guess we can do it here. Now, Rock Scully is a veteran of 100 free concerts. He was dubious, but even he bought into the Michael. Michael Lang says so. Maybe we can. So that's how the decision-making went. Four o'clock on Thursday, they push the button, and they start ferrying equipment from Sonoma. They start grabbing uh, sound gear from various places in San Francisco. They actually appeal over the radio for people to, that own trucks to bring them up to Sonoma, sort of like a Dunkirk evacuation. Wow. And then working through Friday night, they put together a sound, the, a stage, Two different sound systems because they couldn't get one that would uh, work. So there's actually were two entirely separate sound systems uh, erected. The uh, uh, gear was flown over by helicopter from Sonoma. And the first thing that stage manager Chip Monk said was he wanted four 60-foot towers built of the steel. So they used all the steel building these towers, uh, which was supposed to hold spotlights. Well, the spotlights never arrived. <laughs> so those towers were completely useless, but they'd used all the steel. So when they built the stage, all they had left was enough for a three foot high stage. And when they finished with that, they took a string. I kid you not. They took a string and they ran it from one end of the stage to the other to hold the audience back. <laughs> An ill-fated string. Let's hear one more song. This is the Flying Burrito Brothers doing Six Days on the Road, live at Altamont. That was Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers pouring a little oil on the wavy, turbulent seas of Altamont with Six Days on the Road. Their set was actually one of the few sets, or maybe the only set at the show, that was not marred by violence. Their country rock seemed to lull the Hells Angels and the audience into a peaceful state. And really was the high watermark of the Flying Burritos, who had never established themselves as a viable local draw anywhere in their career. And, and this is one of the few shows where Graham Parsons turns up sober and puts in you know, a performance worthy of his talents there at Altamont. But let's get back to our story. So they've picked a terrible location. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's high up on a ridge. It's windy. It's cold. It's in this abandoned racetrack. And, you know, junk, tires, broken glass, oil stains everywhere. The radio stations in the city are hyping this relentlessly. Kids are pouring in. Um, and... Right from the get-go, it's a bad scene. The drugs are bad. Um, and there's this infamous deal with the Hells Angels, who allegedly were paid $500 in beer, not to do security, but just to camp out in front of the stage and kind of help people stay off the stage. And in the course of the Gimme Shelter documentary, I mean, the Hells Angels' reputation is thoroughly ruined by this movie. I mean, they permanently become a criminal outlaw gang. They'd always been outlaws, but now they're criminals. 
you don't really blame the Hells Angels for this debacle. That you kind of tell the story. They were just put in an impossible position, and they were the worst people on earth to put in that position. The Stones played the Angels for patsies, and the Angels were infuriated as soon as they figured out what had happened to them. And I don't blame them because they, they really were just absolutely uh, uh, played by the Stones. But and on the other hand, the Stones didn't know who the Angels were. They thought there was a guys they saw backstage in London with the, the, their colors drawn on in chalk uh, making tea backstage. That's an entirely different animal than the California Hells Angel, believe me. But the San Francisco bands all knew the Angels. They were part of the uh, San Francisco scene. They were They were on... Uh, the every concert you couldn't get rid of them they were a problem they parked their bikes in front of the Fillmore West in the bus zone and the cops didn't even dare give them tickets you know I mean they just were part of it you accepted them you knew not to provoke the bears but um, they also were in business with Owsley the, the, uh, Terry the Tramp was Owsley's LSD distributor he was selling up to $50,000 worth of LSD in the hate a week and Owsley's so, the legendary LSD manufacturer and the sound man for the Grateful Dead and the money man behind the Grateful Dead. So he's a key part of the Dead organization. And one key point you make in the book is that the San Francisco chapter with Terry the Tramp and others in charge who had good relationships with the bands, such as they were, you know, for the Hells Angels, there were very good relationships. But the San Francisco chapter was not in charge at Altamont. And there were multiple chapters who were very different. Seriously significant. Hugely significant, and Terry the Tramp knew this, that when they lost the Golden Gate Park concert site and started talking about moving it, he warned the dead that they were going to lose the jurisdiction of the San Francisco chapter. If they'd had the the show in San Francisco, the San Francisco Hells Angels ruled the roost, and whatever uh, they said went, and the other guys had to follow suit. You move it to some area where there is no chapter and it's free for all. Now, you get out to Altamont and the San Francisco chapter, they show up in their own bus and they sit backstage and, you know, they're rowdy and obnoxious and obstreperous as you expect, but they aren't the guys in the front with pool cues. Okay. The famous meeting that you alluded to, uh, where Sam and rock and, um, Emmett Grogan of the Diggers met with a couple of the Hells Angels over at Ken Kesey's North Beach apartment. And, um, uh, you know, Sam offered them a post of security and, and, and they weren't even talking to the chapter president. It was the chapter vice president, and a guy named Sweet William, who'd spent some time in London hanging out with the Beatles of all things. Uh, and uh, the, Pete said, no, man, we aren't cops. We don't do that. Well, you know, Sam says, we want to show you some hospitality. And and Pete says, well, we like beer. So Sam provided $500 worth of beer. And it's the most famous financial transaction since a Manhattan got bought from the Indians for 24 bucks, 500 bucks worth of beer. But it was just hospitality. There was no... uh, 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 agreement for this Hells Angels to take any official role. A lot of them were very helpful backstage that day. I mean, for instance, Chet Helms was uh, the, of the Avalon Ballroom was dosed beyond his ability to deal with it. And uh, uh, his secretary, Gerilyn, uh, uh, got um, Paul Mum, Badger, of uh, the Richmond chapter, to just babysit Chet all day. And Badger just sat backstage and was, you know, Chet's buddy and took care of him. So there was a lot of that going on, too, that doesn't get written about or discussed. However, in front of the stage, that was the San Jose chapter. And the San Jose chapter was brand new. They started in that, like, summer after a vicious turf war between the Hells Angels and a group called the Gypsy Jokers. And once the Gypsy Jokers got annihilated... They started the San Jose chapter with some ex-Gypsy Jokers and South San Francisco Angels. And it was a brand new, uh, um, much different than San Francisco. San Jose, different culture, you know, not up to speed with the modern day or concerts in the park or hanging out with hippies. You know, they were they were tough guys. And uh, they were also trying to build their membership. So they had a lot of 
pros- prospective members, pro- prospects. And the prospects were really acting out that day because they would get to show off in front of their, you, you know, with the people they aspired to join. So that was a, a big deal. Uh, and uh, the pool cues. I mean, I, I talked to one of the uh, uh, angels. There aren't many who are still with us, but Flash is still here. And, and Flash was there that day. He was a 19-year-old, and he was uh, at, at, in the San Francisco chapter. And he had a whole different story than you, you might imagine he had. <clears throat> and, and he was appalled by what went on. He was appalled by the guy beating up the um, uh, musicians. He was appalled by the way the crowd behaved. He thought the whole thing was just out of hand. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, Flash, I asked him about the pool cues. You know, what's with the pool cues? And Flash was not... I mean, that just made his lip curl. He, he, he essentially told me that pool cues were for amateurs, that they didn't work well because if you got in close, they were useless. If you hit somebody really hard with them, they tended to break. He was not impressed with the pool cue thing at all. He said that if you want to fuck somebody up close on, bring a tire chain. Yep. <laughs> the words of a professional. And let's hear our last song. This is uh, the Rolling Stones doing Gimme Shelter at Altamont. This is after the death of Meredith Hunter. the Rolling Stones playing Gimme Shelter, playing for their lives at Altamont, uh, ter- terrorized uh, by what they'd seen and what had happened to the other bands. But let's talk about the dog that didn't bark. There's one band that was heavily involved in this show that didn't even play. What happened to the Grateful Dead that they didn't play? And what was the effect on the rest of the band's career trajectory of Altamont? Well, the documentary, Gimme Shelter, records the moment where the Santana drummer, <laughs> Michael Shreve catches Jerry and uh, Phil getting off the helicopter and coming on. And, oh man, the angels are beating up musicians. And, and Jerry says, wow, what a bummer. Um, he's whacked on STP, which is some super annuated version of uh, designer psychedelic that Alzi was playing around with. Um, there's some footage uh, uh, on the internet of the uh, Grateful Dead waiting for that helicopter, um, and the Stones show up, so the you know they get the next helicopter. It's pretty funny, you know, Mick and Jerry meeting, and, and you, you can Google that up. It shows up on you. Know, it didn't make the movie, uh, but they immediately find first of all that Bert, their parks guy, uh, who they know to be a non-violent peace activist who'd been in many, many, many demonstrations has a cowboy hat over a bandage underneath which is 60 stitches on his face and head from getting beat up by Hell's Angels with pool cues. Uh, And then they hear about Marty and then they see Rex. Rex Jackson was their enforcer. He was on their road crew. He was the big guy. And when they got into trouble, Rex was the guy that they sent in to handle it. So after uh, Animal beat up Marty, and he beat up Marty on stage and then beat him up again backstage, Rex went after Animal. And Rex got laid out, cold cocked, two black eyes. And so when they saw Bert with 60 stitches, Marty all having his bell rung, and Rex, two black eyes, they adjourned to a band meeting in the back of a Metro van to discuss what to do. And some Hell's Angel sees the dead get into the Metro van and thinks he's funny, so he locks him in. 
puts a board through the door so they can't get out. Now, eventually, like 20 minutes, half hour later, somebody figures it out and gets them out. But you can only imagine how panicked that band meeting was when they realized they'd been locked in, and they determined they're not going to play. And Terry the Tramp, who's very close with the band, he became their physical protector. And Terry the Tramp was known for carrying a bullwhip with him wherever he went. And so he walked around backstage with the dead, uh, leading their way by flicking his whip and clearing the crowd out of the way of the dead. Wow. And and after they escaped with their lives, how did it impact the rest of their career and their view of the music business and the Rolling Stones? Well, I think the whole thing was, you know, that they'd seen the corner of where they were going. The, uh, you know, the psychedelic electro blues improvisations of their first three albums, you know, and, and that's so uh, vividly recorded on their fourth album, the, the double record Live Dead. And I think they knew they'd seen that 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 ball of string was about played out. So in that June, Garcia and uh, Hunter, the his songwriting collaborator, under the spell of music from Big Pink, start writing these songs that they think in, are are in the Buck Owens line. Okay, uh, and not so much, but that's what their mind said is this is going to be like the Buck Owens records uh, and so Altamont they're already playing a couple of those songs at the Fillmore uh, that week um, and uh, of course Hunter cracked uh, uh, the, the uh, that song about Altamont like almost immediately uh, that's in the band set before the, uh, the end of the year anyway in January, they're all arrested in New Orleans, which is no big thing, really, you know, except they arrested Owsley. And Owsley was out on bail from federal charges of uh, 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 manufacturing LSD. So that was it for Owsley. He's gone. He's, he's in jail until he's going to try in prison. And as you say, he was a key member. Not only was he their sound man and their money man and their acid man, they liked him. So that was a huge loss. They felt completely burned and ripped off by the stones. And that was their first effort to try and, like, do something in the rock mainstream outside of their own community. So they decided in February that uh, they go into the studio and in five days they cut Working Man's Dead, which is this acoustic country-flavored, non-psychedelic album that I think worked as a bomb on the band, as a kind of a, a comfort food for them. And that point, and, and you got to also understand, that they don't have any money. They have no audience outside of San Francisco and New York, uh, mountain girls stealing strawberries at the grocery store so that their kids can have some dessert. Uh, it's, it's really hard times over there. And they determined that the only thing that they could do comfortably was to maintain their own community and not to venture out any further as they had with the stones. So that's when they start putting out their own records and, booking their own tours and opening their own travel agency and et cetera. They became incredibly self-sufficient, uh, which then grew to be a burden on them. But that was the, the, the turning point for them was Altamont, New Orleans. Oh, and uh, did I mention that their manager, drummer Mickey Hart's father, Lenny, disappears right around that same time with all their money? All their money was $80,000, but that was all their money. A bad run of luck for the dead in this period, but they recover and, and you know take their own legendary path as a result of this. What's the impact on the Rolling Stones? You make a pretty strong argument that they're never the same again after Altamont. I have this strong theory about the Rolling Stones' music because they had recorded three songs 
the four Altamont and Muscle Shoals that are the kind of backbone of the subsequent album, Sticky, Sticky Fingers, uh, Brown Sugar, You Got to Move, and Wild Horses. So after Altamont, I don't think the Stones could believe in themselves in the same way. I think they had faced evil face to face and they'd been terrified to their hearts. And that's the point where their records start to lack a kind of conviction that was such a substantial part of all the records before. If you were to take those three songs off sticky fingers, it's a different record. And uh, without going into it too much detail, let's just take you got you uh, I hear you knocking you uh, can't you hear me knocking it's kind of a stonesy flavored thing and then all of a sudden it turns into a Santana track and the stones had never felt the need to sound like another band before they'd always been happy just to sound like the stones and there's a lot of that in their subsequent work but before Altamont, including those three songs, their body of work has this tensile strength that goes through it. And all I can tell you is I, I feel that's a self-confidence that was ruptured and they've never really been able to restore until like, mm, you know, the, some of the big shows in, in, in the, the 21st century. And, and I also think that they, that Lonesome and Blue record is those guys at their absolute most natural uh, and their best record since Let It Bleed. That's what I think. But Let It Bleed is one of the great, if not the greatest rock albums of the 60s. Certainly the Beatles never made an album that was as uncompromisingly strong and, and, and excellent as that. Yeah, it was a real high mark. And, and, and in the end... Nobody is held liable for this. I mean, multiple people die. Meredith Hunter is is killed by a Hell's Angel who's acquitted at trial. Um, multiple people die in a car crash after the show. Uh, Denise Jukes, a member of a band called Ace of Cups, gets a, st- a skull fracture from a hurled beer can. Um, I think during the Flying Burrito Brothers set, one of the less violent sets. So there's all this carnage. How did the Stones avoid legal liability for this? Good question. Um, they strung out the lawsuit on the hotel bills for years. Uh, they never made even the slightest contact with Hunter's uh, family. Uh, there was uh, a lawsuit launched by a bunch of the Altamont farmers, and that fell apart. Uh, and there were some lawsuits on, on Carter's part, too. So Carter got sued. Um, it's Dick Carter, the owner. Of my recollection, Dick Carter. Yeah, you know, I went out in, on the tenth anniversary in '79 to do a, a, a you know, newspaper article, and, uh, and uh, met Carter out there. He was long disassociated. We had to climb over the fence to get in. <laughs> <laughs> the, the haunted uh, graveyard of Altamont, uh, where so many died and and let's talk about the media coverage initially the san francisco examiner uh writes the first stories about it and they go with what a beautiful weekend um kind of reprising the woodstock narrative what's the media oh yeah it's a funny article by an older guy that just didn't get it you know he oh yeah somebody got knifed to death there was some traffic problems but you know really it was a beautiful thing uh the the real uh word started to leak out on Sunday night when KSAN, the local underground radio station, broadcast a special that had been developed by just talking named Stefan Ponick. Stefan had been out there and he was appalled at what was going on. And he had an open line and he had people on the phone calling in, talking about it. And uh, Sonny Barger called the president of the Oakland Hells Angels. And he was high as a kite. He was snorting cocaine and, and, and just speed rapping on the phone. I don't know if you know how much we paid for those bikes. You know, I mean, it's an amazing piece. 
is well available on the internet. Uh, to me, Sonny Barger's speech on, on Altamont is one of the great pieces of American literature. It really, it, it speaks so much of the, of, of the ethos of the rugged individual of the great West, which the hell's angels were kind of the last fixture of and then Barger, who, who is just an incredibly intuitive guy knows who he is better than anybody I think I've ever met. So that's really interesting. And that really bursted open there. A bunch of the angels, you know, Pete from the SF chapter called and talked up and he said he didn't know what happened to the, the guy that was killed because he was backstage dancing. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing night on radio. Bill Graham called up and threatened Mick Jagger's life. Uh, and some of that stuff got edited into uh, um, you know, a short version of it by Stefan sometime in the 80s. And that piece is around. It's on the internet. It's on the special features of the DVD. Uh, but uh, the the full uh, uh, recordings uh, seems to have uh, vanished. I, I, I worked really hard to find the Bill Graham uh, audio, which Stefan didn't include in the edited version because it has so much swearing in it. <laughs> Every bad word you can think of, the M word, the F word, the C word, everyone. And Bill Graham, of course, is the impresario of the Fillmore, who had promoted a couple of the shows on the tour and had hoped to promote the entire Stones tour and had been cut out and had had a vicious falling out with the Stones and, and uh, you know, became... Oh, yeah, he hated free concerts. He hated the Stones. He, he didn't want his people to do anything with this concert. Uh, and, you know, once it, it turned into the debacle it did, he... he, he you know, took center stage and, and, and claimed he always knew it was going to be that way. And but let's talk about the Rolling Stone special issue, which kind of made the bones of the magazine as as sure legit journalists. So tell us that as our last question about Altamont. So that was, a, uh, what, November 67 really was the first issue of Stone. And they've been this kind of like, middle ground between an underground newspaper and a teen music magazine that nobody had ever seen before. And it was kind of percolating in the underground and, and they threw all their resources on this. Um, and they did so uh, because of the managing editor, John Burks. John just died uh, last year. Uh, he had been with Newsweek and had some actual journalistic experience. Uh, I believe they had about 15 reporters out there and he cobbled together under extreme time pressure <laughs> an 11,000 word article uh, that has tense issues and bad grammar and, and, and you know, it, it shows the seams, let's say, of the edit. But it starts with this stunning interview with a, 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 a young man who witnessed uh, Hunter's killing. And keep in mind, that's not a murder. You know, Alan Pissarro was tried for murder and he was found not guilty by a um, the, you know, the jury in, in uh, Oakland who saw footage over and over and over again of Hunter pulling a gun out just before they uh, Pissarro stabbed him to death. But, uh, you know, the whole thing just uh, ran amok, uh, and, and and there was nothing they could do to retrieve it at that point, you know? Yeah, it was uh, just staggering in its implications. And uh, my guest has been Joel Selvin. The book is Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Joel, thanks so much for putting this story together, because I think it's important to do the research, find the facts, and figure out, you know, what went wrong and who was at fault. And man, did this thing change the course of music history. So Joel, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Nate. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. 
Thursday, Nate conducts a telepathic interview with Andrew Lou Goldham to discuss his memoir, Stoned, which covers his amazingly precocious music management career and early months with the Rolling Stones, including the betrayal that Mick Jagger never forgave Brian Jones for. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.